I think that, and look, this is probably wrong, but it might not be wrong. I think human imagination is the most powerful force in the universe. It's certainly the most powerful force that we have to contend with and certainly in modern life. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Eric Peters, founder, CEO, and CIO of One River Asset Management. He is a macro thinker with a rare ability to parse markets, human psychology, and long-term trends. Eric also pens the popular weekly newsletter, Weekend Notes, with reflections on markets, global events, and history. Our conversation with Eric centers on models of change. We cover Eric's philosophy and models of change, how he applies these models in markets, and technology as a change agent. We also discuss the power of human imagination, digital assets, and lessons from 20th century financial market history. Quick heads up, we encountered some audio challenges while recording this episode. And while the content is fabulous, there are some isolated instances of background noise in the first half. Welcome. It's really great to have you with us, Eric. I think a good starting point for our conversation, why does the macro perspective resonate with you? Well, for starters, Eric and Sasha, thank you. It's great to be with you. And I've been excited for this just because it's a bit, a bit further afield from a lot of things that I'm typically asked to speak about, which tend to focus directly on markets. And you guys seem like you're, you're moving in a broader direction, which I think is great. In terms of macro markets, I, I started trading macro right out of college simply because I had looked around at different things that I thought would be interesting to me to, to pursue as a career, knowing really honestly quite quite little. And when I, I was graduating college, I went around and met with a range of different people who had been very successful or were very successful in their careers. And just to kind of interview them, what was commercial real estate like as a professional? What was international shipping like? What was the entertainment industry like? What was Wall Street proper like? And none of them, none of them seemed to be pursuits that would keep me terribly interested nothing really resonated. And then I met, I met with someone who was a trader out in Chicago, ran a business, which coincidentally is kind of around the same size that the mine is right now. I spent an afternoon with him and watched him lose what was the equivalent of a, a year tuition at, at my college. 
And, and afterwards he asked me, what do you think? And I said, well, I, I was, oh, what do you do wrong? And he said, I didn't do anything wrong. I did. I think I did everything right today, actually. But it's just kind of the way, the way markets operate. He was the first person who had achieved really substantial success. And all of these different people had in their various professions, but they all seemed kind of bored with what they did. And he seemed the opposite. I was literally immediately sold. And I had, I had got some great job offers, but I decided at that point to just bag all of them. And I headed to Chicago and started trading for myself. I've been hooked ever since. Not, not that, you know, that I'm hooked like a chucky, but I think it's, I'm just a very curious person. I think that it's a great way to live your life. I know that you guys are as well. And again, I admire what you're, what you're building here with this podcast. I think for, for someone who, who is a naturally curious person, markets are just an incredible place to spend your career because they're really these mass human behavioral creatures in a way. But you're trying to figure out as you try to think about markets, unless you're doing something that's really niche yet focused on arbitrage, you're trying to get a sense for what the future might look like, what's priced into the market. And, and then analyze how market prices move as the probabilities around some of these future outcomes unfold and evolve. There's never a right answer. Only in the future will you know what the right answer was. But because of the way we all interact with markets, both moving the, the price around and be, because of the way societies and governments and policymakers interact with markets, because we're all kind of trading these things and influencing them at the same time there's never one certain outcome. So I just find that, that fascinating. I think I am good at staying really quite objective about the range of future possibilities and try to remain unbiased. And then every once in a while, some, something seems really apparent that is poorly understood. And those are exciting periods. I think we're in one now, incidentally. That's what's kept my attention. And, and yeah, I love what I do. It's absolutely fascinating. Certainly not for everyone. It's torturous and painful in all kinds of ways. It's a wonderful way for a curious person to spend their career. Yeah, and taking this aspect a bit further, how do you situate our existence as a civilization with respect to the backdrop of, let's say, even human history? When I was a lot younger, I'm 54 now. I don't know if it was when I was 25 or I'm not sure, but I lived in London. I bought this huge book and the book was actually a map that folds out to, I don't even have it anymore. It was probably 10 or 12 feet long. It was a map of human history. It started on the left and it flowed through to the right. It was kind of beautifully drawn and it incorporated in the early days, just few tribes really. And then it, it showed how these tribes splintered and formed and civilizations came about and empires rose and fell and failed and wars happened, et cetera, et cetera. And it brought us up to the present day. For me, when I look at something like that, it reminds me that we're part of this river, this flow that will continue hopefully for a very long period of time, which I think it will. It, it is a great reminder that things are always in flux, sometimes for the worse, but almost always for the better. If you look at almost any point on a map like that and back through time, while you may be pessimistic about current circumstances for a variety of reasons, and often a lot of people are, and I'm not immune to that at times, but you discover that 
progress of human history has just been absolutely remarkable. When I think about where we are right now, I think we're in an incredibly exciting time. It's going to be a unique time. In some respects, it's probably the second renaissance of humanity. And in other respects, because the technologies that we've developed are so powerful, the breadth of our knowledge is so vast and the interconnectivity of humans throughout the world is unlike anything it's ever been. There are all kinds of real risks that can emanate from that, that we've just never quite confronted the latest pandemic, perhaps being, being one of them. But I, I just think we're in an incredibly exciting time. The technology and the tools that we have are pushing us to have to interact with issues and risks that are greater than they have ever been. But historically, we've gotten through those. So I, I'm, I'm really excited about where we are right now. I think it's the best time in human history to have been alive. And hopefully we can do a good job of making sure you know, the next year people will continue to say that. But we'll see. I've got, I've got an open mind. I think things could go wrong from here too, of course. But I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty excited overall. We'll talk about some more abstract notions now in a bit more detail. We'd like to define some of these aspects related to your philosophy of change, your philosophy of, I guess, hype study change. And the first, of course, term that jumps out at you is change itself. So how do you think about the anatomy of change and how do you define change? I do think about change a lot because in a sense, I traffic in change. When you study that for a long time, one of the things that I think you can't help but come to recognize is that the vast majority, perhaps all people are resistant to change. And for some reason, the way I think about it is that people want to live under some illusion of stability. And I think that the reason for that at the core of kind of who we are as humans is because at some level, we know we can't have it. The one thing we can't have is stability. Even if we create the most stable environment around us, every day we're a day older and we're closer to dying. But there's no way to prevent that, right? So it's the one thing that we can't have is stability. And probably that's why people crave it so much. And the great irony is that if things were stable, we still would live in caves, which I presume most people wouldn't want to be doing. It's through embracing change that we advance, and yet people don't seem to want to change or they're scared about change. To me, change is just transformation, evolution. It's moving from one state to something that's, that's different. And most of the time, those differences day by day are so incremental as to hardly appear to be anything. And then there are other periods where day to day, week to week, the change is really dramatic. For a long time, we, we haven't, at least in, in the West, we haven't really lived through a really traumatic period. And now we kind of, we have, like we've moved through something which has shaken people's foundations and made people, even if they have a stable job, they've felt out of control to a certain degree. And I, I think that's super healthy for humans like to just confront the fact that things are always changing. And I try to guard against my own tendencies to want to resist change. And I say that because I, I recognize that I'm human like everyone else. So I probably have those same biases and same impulses and instincts that I really do try to 
look for ways to recognize change, embrace it, and incorporate it into just how I operate, how I think about the world, life, et cetera. How important is it to invert that question in some sense? The question of when does not change? Where in the prioritization scheme does that fit in for you? The question of when does not change? For me, there are all kinds of natural laws that don't change. And so those are pretty boring. The most interesting thing that is not change. So like gravity, best we can tell, does not change. Although I think all the exploration into the world of quantum is forcing us to think about even some of these fundamental principles that we just thought were given. That's super interesting to me. I don't think that in my lifetime, really to understand those things. Well, I think that there's a whole world of physical phenomena that we, we will understand more through time. I don't think I'll understand a whole lot more through my lifetime. So I like to keep an eye on it because it's so interesting to me, but I don't spend that much time on it because I can't really get my arms around it. The one thing in my life, and I think in our lives, that really doesn't change is human behavior. It's not to say that on an individual level, we can't evolve. I think we can change on it as individuals. And I think societies can go through periods where they look like they're becoming more enlightened. And I hope through time that we do, but they're, they're big parts of how we operate as humans in families and in tribes that now look more like countries that just don't really change a whole lot. That's super interesting to me because you have this complex mass human psychology animal or creature in a way. I think humans are kind of a super organism. There's this thing that has elements of it that appear to evolve over time, but a lot of the core doesn't change. And then it's interacting with a world that seems like it's always changing. That's where a lot of opportunity arises. Why is change important? If humans weren't engaged in all these activities that are creating all this change in our own little, little bubble floating around the universe, would it matter? It's like, the, I don't think it would matter at all. Not big, big, big picture, right? So it matters to us. And it, it's a feature of evolution that for whatever reason, we have this thing called intelligent life and we've, we've just kind of come of age and we have this desire to just build and approve and discover and that all those dynamics as we're working through it, create this change. I don't know that it's necessarily important, but it's, it is to us individually because it's just, this is all we know, right? But in the abstract, is it important? Yeah, maybe not. I remember when I was, it might've been in third grade or fourth grade, I remember learning all about Egyptian history. And one of the remarkable things about that is that nothing really changed for a long, long period of time. They had a lot of the same technologies and they just became very stagnant. As a result, they became very vulnerable. I, I, I do think that if you take the issue of change out of the abstract, you just apply it to human history. If as a society, you don't embrace change, you become stagnant and fragile and then ultimately you fail. It is important if you're living on earth that you're the kind of person who can adapt to change and the kind of family who can adapt to change and society and nation and probably ultimately species. For us as a species, we haven't had to really confront the importance of being able to adapt and change, but we kind of are probably beginning to just because of our impact on the climate and you know, eventually that will become a bigger and bigger issue.
one more thing here, just so listeners have a better sense of your your lens and filter. Let's hone in on kind of the, the relationship between time and change. First, how do you think about that relationship? And are there any patterns you've identified when it comes to how time relates to change? I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. It's really important to identify the time horizon that is important to you and map that to whatever it is you're trying to figure out. Depending on your time horizon, things change dramatically. And, and depending on your time horizon, that can be really quick. I think it's important to remember that things are always, always changing. Then to, to kind of bring it back into what's relevant for our lives and markets, I'm looking for things that are happening that, that don't make very much sense. If I can identify those, then it tells me that there's probably some different reality that we don't yet see, we don't yet appreciate. Consequently, we haven't yet priced in. Some of those can happen over decades and some of them could happen over years and some of them could happen over months and, and even minutes. I don't traffic in, in minutes anymore. Maybe early, early in my career, I cared about that. I kind of don't really traffic in even weeks, but I, I look for things that run contrary to what my estimation is. When I, when I look for counterintuitive price movements to help me identify things that I think are real information, even if I don't, I don't have to understand why things are moving in a counterintuitive way, I just need to understand that they are and have a lot of confidence in that. And that requires you have the experience and confidence to identify what most people really are thinking and their level of conviction. So then you have a, you have a kind of a piece of information. Then when you see that weird movement, you don't have to understand why, but you will understand that, that there is that change. If you can hone in on the right time horizon where you believe that that information is actually very valuable, then you really have something there. That's how I think about this different time horizons. It's super important to make sure that the information that, that your analysis it matches the time horizon that's relevant to you. We will talk more about your core models of change and how you even apply them. How do you think about the models of change? how relevant it is to have those models. When it comes to financial markets, one of, I think, the most important things to think about when you think about how things change is to recognize that financial markets are always evolving. The most important model of understanding changes is evolution. There's no end point. What happens is, and this is increasingly the case, we're trying to measure things by looking at markets. We think that we are exogenous to the movements of those markets when in fact we're endogenous to them. We're part of the markets that we're trading. And central bankers are trying to look to markets for signals for how well they're doing. And people confuse markets for reality. They start interacting with markets to create the kind of the illusion of of a reality as represented by how a market is behaving. You get these divergences between actual reality and this 
illusion of reality. The illusion of reality is the market that's being manipulated by the central bank or the government or the regulators or, or the large traders and investors that are interacting with that market. Those create all kinds of distortions and opportunities. You get the illusion of reality and reality diverging too far apart and that they periodically end up collapsing. Th those equilibriums become very unstable if, if the difference is too wide and that there's, there's kind of a collapse between the two and then the process can start all over again. You know, when I think about models, you know, models of change when it comes to markets, I really, I really do think about them as always evolving and making, in a sense, our, our best plans look foolish. If we're aiming for stability, if, if we think that we've developed something that's just going to be perpetually profitable, it's just you know, unlikely to be true. I'd say evolution in markets is just the most important thing to really just embrace. And it, it is what it is. Yeah, this is interesting. Get a better sense on your kind of philosophy and application of models of change. And really, these are your mental models. So you mentioned reflexivity, the endogenous variable, and, and then evolution. Those seem to be two, I guess, mental models that you apply. What else? What else in the toolkit? We'd love to get a better sense of how you process the world, your sort of information processing apparatus. What else is in the toolkit in terms of models? I think that what I've described is really the foundation of how I think about things. I think that financial markets and the way economies work and the way people and governments and regulators and investors, I think the way they all interact is just always evolving. A lot of people look for repetition. I think that there are a lot of behaviors that repeat, but they manifest in ways that are sufficiently different that you need to be super humble as you look for things that have repeated or corollary periods. So because we think that that we're in a period that resembles the mid to late 60s, number one, doesn't mean that the 70s will follow. Could. There's going to be something really pretty different. When I think about models, if you just try to get closer to, to a subject than most people do, then you have a really strong advantage. Doesn't mean you need to really know exactly what the future looks like. If you have kind of made money or guessed part of the future, right? People ascribe way too much value to your opinions. It's incredibly important to remain tremendously humble through the whole process of doing these things. Anyway, I, I don't know if that really answers your question, Eric, but I, I don't think you need a lot of models to try to, at least I don't, to try to figure out how the, how the world works at the highest level. I mean, there are other models for, well, how, how does monetary policy work and how does inflation work and, and how to how do investment cycles work and, and all those things. There are a lot of sub models, but at the highest level, the things that are most helpful for me is to really understand that the world is always changing. All these markets are evolving. There is unlikely to be a period that really, really, really closely resembles another period, but there will be some similarities. So it's important to kind of study those, those histories. If you do a lot of that work and you can, and you have a, a very good, broad perspective on things, you've got to stay super attuned to any inconsistencies at how things are behaving relative to what you would think that they would in that framework. When you discover those, 
you need to drill in. And if there really is a, a material inconsistency, then you have you literally have found gold. You can even make a lot of money, even if you have no idea what that change is, just because you know that there are a lot of other people who are going to have to concede that their worldview is wrong for some reason. And the process by which they start having to exit their positions just to get flat, you're going to make money by being ahead of that, that, that process of discovery. God forbid you can actually wrap your head around what that discrepancy actually means and wrap your head around it to the point where you have a lot of conviction, then you can actually get aggressive at markets. And those are definitely the, the, the biggest opportunities for, I think, an investor or person is when you can identify those periods with enough conviction that you understand what actually is going on, that you can make a, a big concentrated bet, whether that's, and, and by the way, that, that can apply to a business, that can apply to trading, that can apply to a lot of things. But that's, that's at the highest level, that is my model. You spoke to understanding history, reading patterns as a way to apply models or even figure out what's happening. What are the other ways you imply your models? I could answer that question in terms of what we do in markets and then what we do in our business. The two are somewhat related. In market, we do things that are both discretionary and systematic. The things that we do that are systematic are intended to incorporate our thinking and, and then codify those things. It's not that I don't believe in machine learning or some type of AI approach to trading. I would love to incorporate that into what we do. We have not yet discovered that we have an edge in doing that at scale. We are very active in trend following strategies. The reason for that is I think we get paid to engage in those activities and follow those trends because it is difficult for most people to do the same thing. It's psychologically difficult for people to hold on to winners for a long time. It is difficult for people to accept that they have made a mistake. We have a very high level of conviction that the coming decade will see an awful lot of changes. The great thing about trend is you can capitalize on those even if they're up or down. We're always hunting for really big opportunities. We talked earlier about how to identify those big opportunities. I think one of the really big opportunities that we'll look back on and say, change the way financial markets operate, potentially the way societies operate, are the technologies that collectively fall in the category of blockchain. We've made a big bet in markets on the effectively the currencies or the tokens that are attached to these, to some of the dominant protocols like Bitcoin, Ethereum. We'll be doing things in other markets as well. But we've also set up a whole part of our business to capitalize on that opportunity because I think that I, I have incredibly high conviction that, and is growing, that these technologies will change, again, markets, market infrastructure, and perhaps bigger and broader things across the way humans interact with one another, maybe the way governments work potentially in the end state. We want to be part of that change. We want to be vested in those strategies. We also want to be building out a business to capitalize on that. They're all connected to what we're doing in markets when we're doing business, but we've really made a significant entry into that space. We're the, the first dedicated institutional asset manager in digital assets. There are other firms that are doing money management, in, but we're the first kind of traditional alternative asset manager. 
Actually, that is a great segue into software and technology as a change agent. From your vantage point, what has been that impact caused by software and technology? Software is is just the most recent kind of massive technological advance. When, again, when you kind of draw way back through a study of history, when I refer back to, or I think back on that map that I talked to you guys about, 10 foot map or something, when you follow that progression of human history from the dawn of time to now, when I look at that, and I'm going to make a real generalization here, okay, but but I think it's true. I think that the the advance of humanity, ironically, has followed the course of the advance of technologies that make it easier, more efficient to kill one another. There obviously are lots of technologies that are not built to kill people, but the big ones, the really, the really big ones, I think what's, what's pushed humans to advance technologically has more or less been the necessity of defending are either taking things from others or defending ourselves from others. And the, the reason I say that is because it's life is the animal kingdom and that life is pretty brutal affair, really. <laughs> we live on a pond at our house and people come by it and they're beautiful, they're, they're osprey circling above it and they're, they're maybe muskrats running around the edges of it and they're frogs and they're egrets and they go, it's so beautiful. Well, I'll be out on the couch writing my weekly piece on a Saturday and you spend an hour there. It's a killing field. Life is brutal. It's just, uh, it's just a reminder. Life, a quick glimpse of, of any environment like that might be beautiful, but you know, we're just built to, to kill and eat and all these things. Look, I think humans are wonderful and beautiful and, and terrible all at the same time. Throughout history, we've had to guard against that. That's been a, a huge motivator in my and my hope for humanity is that we move on to kind of bigger problems rather than just our tribal issues that we have with one another. Now, if you, you look at the world today, you'd say maybe that's, that's too much to hope for because we seem to be almost reverting to a more tribalistic society, at least here at the U.S. And I think that we are. But my hope is that some of the bigger challenges like climate change get us to focus on a common enemy, that enemy being just how do we safeguard ourselves collectively. But those are things to me that have pushed us with technology, just to look at the atom bomb, look at a lot of these things. The software just fits into that long line and that long list. And I think that the ways that we are currently interacting with software are just remarkable. How we're using it is remarkable. A lot of those things are killing machines as well, of course, and they're all tied in. I think that that's your world and your business more than it is mine. I just look at it from afar. I'm more or less a user of of technologies and just kind of a, a watcher of how they are an observer in terms of how they develop increasingly as we're more and more involved in what's happening in blockchain technologies. As I, I mentioned, I think that they will absolutely change the whole way that finance and asset management is done, which is our business opportunity and market slash trading opportunity. We've connected what seven or 8 billion people together who now at their fingertips have access to, to everything that humans have ever discovered or theorized about. Every single human has that ability and we can all connect with one another at the same time. 
we can collaborate in ways that can lead to overthrows of government. It can lead to all kinds of things that just literally weren't possible. What's so interesting to me about these blockchain technologies is that you now, for the first time in human history, software has allowed humans to connect at scale and create a form of decentralized trust in the cloud, which honestly, I still, I mean, I only loosely understand how, how all that works, but yet it all works. What are the consequences of that for how markets operate? How does it affect the way humans interact in the future? I don't really know, but I think it could be pretty wildly different from what we've assumed has to be the way things operate. So for the last thousand plus years, I would say, and maybe the true number is for the last 10,000 years, we have assumed that the way the world operates is some kind of tribe that's now expanded out all the way to potentially an empire. But it's, there's some type of centralized control or authority that is the foundation of how we think the whole world operates. And that could be the way our credit card company operates or our bank operates or the U.S. government operates or a central bank and a currency of a country or an organization that provides humanitarian aid or you name it. If you really think deeply about how we believe the world works, you will quickly arrive at a point where you go, we have made a huge assumption that there needs to be some type of central control. Even the family structure, like everything that we do requires some type of central authority or control to provide trust. Now, software and the, the development of blockchain technology has called that into question. It's actually not necessarily true. We're only at the beginning of thinking about how that will expand out across not just financial markets, but society. I don't know where that will lead. I really don't know where it will lead us. But if it leads to a world where in 50 or 100 years, we look back and we say, well, there was the world when we all thought that everything needed to be centralized. We thought that for 10,000 years. And then software and the cloud and all this interconnectivity allowed us to think in a totally different way. Obviously, the, the world was going to become something different. I think it will seem like that was the most obvious thing in the world. I, but I think we're in one of those moments where the potential for an obvious, what will look, end up looking like obvious next step, we're in the beginning part of that right now. I don't know how it will manifest. Software has enabled that. And that's just, it's incredible. It's, I mean, that's really incredible. You did speak about software connecting seven to eight billion people. It is probably questioning our current assumptions and view of the world. And that's how maybe we are at a precipice of this change which starts. Do you see the change accelerating? I do. Yeah. I think it has been. And it's almost inconceivable to me that it won't really accelerate from here, actually. It's a bit mind-boggling because it feels like so many things have changed just in the last 15 or 20 years. I think that the real change is just getting going because these things scale. When you created a network of users, I mean, just look at, we look at things like, I don't know, Facebook or I don't use Facebook, to be honest, but you, we look at these kinds of things and then you can see the market caps that are created. That, that's just a reflection of 
the recognition that there is value that is created when you get a lot of people together. But what's been happening increasingly, I think, behind the scenes is that, yeah, you have all these people forming these networks in social media to, I don't know, enjoy their, presumably have deeper, more fulfilling lives, although I question that enormously, which is probably why I've tried to avoid it. But, but there's no question that these networks create greater value for their users as they expand out and that those things can accelerate. There's probably a limit to what Facebook can become, for instance, hopefully it becomes much less than what it is now from my perspective. I think in the scientific community, these networks have formed deepening and the technologies are deepening. And what's possible is, I think we haven't even really scratched the, the surface of what's possible. One of my brothers is a CEO of a company that is doing something that's never been done before in technology. And he's sold a company that had created materials that had never been created before that make solar more efficient. Now he's working on creating 3D flat screen technology that will, in its end state, will be able to take a wall and turn it into something that is indistinguishable from reality with the screen that's 3D. How will that change the world? I don't know. But all of the big tech companies are working on augmented reality glasses. I've seen some of the early versions of that. Some of it is silly kind of stuff. You can be looking at your glasses and their dinosaurs running around it. That's kind of fun. But then some of the features are in an augmented way in front of you is a human body or human heart that's pumping in 3D and you can peel back layers of it and, and watch and see how that operates. The impression that you're left with is far richer and deeper than looking at that on a 2D textbook or something like that. You feel like you've interacted with the human heart and traveled through it and it feels incredibly real. All these things, like all of this stuff is being powered by rapidly advancing technology, this network effect of incredibly smart people that are collaborating. It's hard to fathom that it's going to do anything other than accelerate. You made this interesting observation, Eric, around how a lot of the things we see manifesting, including Bitcoin and crypto and the software technology in general, is, is simply a manifestation of human imagination. I think you also said that you want to be long human imagination. So just would love to hear you just riff on that observation, if you will. I think that... and. Look, this is probably wrong, but it might not be wrong. I think human imagination is the most powerful force in the universe. It's certainly the most powerful force that we have to contend with and certainly in modern life. If you think about all the things that move markets, either up or down, at the extreme, it's our imaginations running wild in both directions. That's, that's what creates market extremes, either bullish or bearish. It's you know, projecting forward a world that you imagine that is grander than, whereby tomorrow is far, far grander than today. So you're willing to pay kind of any price to, to buy it. On the downside, you're imagining a world that's far more grim than today. 
you're willing to sell at any price or hedge at any price in order to mitigate having to experience that financially. When you think about what has gotten us here, we started when that first fossilized footprint from Lucy, I forget what it was, 3.2 million years ago or something. We stood upright at one point and we figured out and managed to live in caves. Now we have people on a space station. And how did that happen? We take it for granted. People invented that. But what does that really mean? How did that happen? Because I know that we're intelligent beings, but there are plenty of states of a potential world where you could have imagined intelligent beings not having created that, not having done what, what we did. I think the driver is that we human beings can imagine a tomorrow that is different from today. Generally speaking, we want, again, to protect our tribe, our family, ourselves from outside threats. And those could be environmental and those could be animal slash environmental, or they could be other humans. And we try to protect ourselves. We imagine bad things could happen. We can imagine good things that we could create that would mitigate the risks of those bad things happening. Then we have the intelligence to do something about it. And we do that through discovery of new things and invention of an, an application of some of those discoveries that process repeats and compounds. And best I can tell when you look at how quickly our, our ascent has happened from kind of a technological basis, it's an incredibly powerful force. I think that if you want, you could sit back and you could say, well, it's going to have natural limitations and we're going to hit the limits of quantum computing and then it's, we're all going to flatten out or we're going to kill ourselves. All those things might be true. I don't know. They might be. You have to concede that it's possible, but it could also be true that for all of the mysteries that we know exist in the universe, and we could spend a whole podcast on that, I'm sure. I think for all of our misunderstandings, probably about how it all works, one of the things that I just would observe is that this force of human imagination behind it is human ingenuity is incredibly powerful force. It's just, you look around the world, there's like, there's nothing that's more powerful than that. Yes, the sun is incredibly powerful and and it could burn us all up and everything else. But it might just be possible that human imagination combined with this ingenuity, and it just like, to me, it's a much more interesting and therefore power, what I would consider real power. It's more powerful than anything else that I think is out there. When it turns against itself, it's frightening. You see that occasionally in, in financial markets, which don't really matter at the end of the day. I mean, like, the end of the day, financial markets are just, it, it's really not that important. Wars are important. Wars and things like that. But you can see that dynamic happening in wars and you can see that the people's imagination, when it runs wild and they become fearful, can lead to terrible outcomes. But most of it's just imaginary. It's a frightening and it's a beautiful thing. To your point earlier, the fascinating thing is when people, people people's collective imagination can compound I mean, that can be shared a shared collective imagination instead of one individual in isolation that's the fascinating thing that these software-based systems enable we alluded to this idea of measuring change earlier any practical or specific factors that you incorporate or you would point to call out with respect to measuring change i've always like to look at price charts because within them you can cover an enormous amount of ground and normalize everything or anything to 
a similar way of analyzing it, which is just kind of the movement of, of price. And, and it can be economic indicators as well. It could be central bank balance sheet levels, could be all, all these things. It's, it's not so much that I use them to measure change as opposed to track it, but maybe that's one and the same. But when I started trading, I had this, there was this thing out in Chicago, this, this, it was an old, it was effectively an old newspaper account once a week. It was, I don't know, the CRB commodity something or other. It was a pack of charts and it was effectively every commodity chart, commodity futures chart, which included equity index futures and, and fixed income, et cetera. I would update each one of those, the high, low close every day across all those charts, just because it helped, helped my brain, each of these markets, even if I wasn't trading them, because I, I felt that these different market relationships probably contained information in them and uh, that having real feel like a touch and feel for how and why different markets, or at least how they have moved in a day and in a week and in a month and in a quarter and in a year, having a feel for that would help me. I think that it has, but I also think that I spent so many hours, God, God knows how many hours I've spent in my life just looking at, at charts. I think that it just mapped into my brain. That's how to follow, that's how to follow change. That's just become probably part of how I operate. Let's get into this, this segment that I think we're really looking forward to, which is lessons from history. And, and specifically, this model that you mentioned earlier, which is sort of the corollary periods or eras previously in history that are instructive, informative, that might have explanatory or, or potentially predictive power. So you mentioned the 60s as a hypothesis. I guess you see a lot of corollaries between the 60s. And today, maybe let's start there. Why? And then expand more broadly on theorems or events or, or periods of time in history that you find particularly informative for today's world. So having spent my career studying market history one of the, and trading with lots of people of all different ages, one of the things that I find interesting is that people are so impacted by the trading and market environments that they have lived through. And so if you find someone who, who traded, who started their, their career in 2015, of which there are an awful lot of people trading in banks and places like that started that, they'll look at something that's happening in markets, maybe not this moment, but around now, let's say there's a market decline. They'll say, this looks a lot like 2016 with what was going on in China. And you gotta laugh and go, does it? Or is that just because that's the most recent thing that you can remember because it's the only experience that you had. And so I think that's the way most people ultimately look at markets, which would include me. If, if I know that is going to be my tendency because it's just a human tendency, then I have to be especially careful that I don't fall into that. Now, I, for better, or for worse, have a larger sample set of potential periods rather, relative to that kid who started in 2015. I could think about what happened in 08. I could think about uh, the taper tantrum. I could think about what happened with the European debt crisis. I could think about what happened with dot-com and 9-11, LTCM and the Russia crisis, and the Asian crisis, the Mexican crisis, kind of et cetera, et cetera, right? Going all the way back to 89. I might persuade myself that I, I have this deeper level of knowledge and experience and, and wisdom compared to the person who started in 2015, but I might actually be kidding myself. 
I think if you're really going to be honest about a study of market history, you have to just not only include the period that you've lived and traded through. So I was born in 66, which happened to be a market high and a real market decline, which I didn't know about at the time because I was just born. But as we study these different periods, you kind of stumble on things. We were looking over the last few years, we were looking for corollary periods to those where volatility was very low, inflation was low and stable. Why were we looking at that? We were looking at that because it struck me that it was highly likely that monetary policy was no longer effective because I was observing that it was no longer really effective. All the central bankers were saying it was no longer really effective. It was highly likely that was true. It's highly likely that in the next crisis, we would need to have a large fiscal boost or impulse to make monetary policy effective or that we were going to have to accommodate a massive debt write down and just start the whole system over again. You could do that either through just allowing a recession to turn into a depression, or you could have a war and just wipe the slate clean. But neither of those seemed to be likely. Hopefully a war wasn't likely. And it seemed unlikely that politicians were, would be willing to accommodate a depression and a debt write down. Either you had to believe that in the next recession, monetary policy was going to all of a sudden become incredibly potent again for no apparent reason, which seemed unlikely, or that there's going to be some kind of huge technology boom or productivity boom that would allow economies to just avoid a recession altogether, which seemed unlikely because these things take time, or that you were going to get a big fiscal impulse. And in a big fiscal impulse, combined with monetary policy, it seemed highly likely that you would have an inflation of some sort. Certainly no longer have this period of secular stagnation with very low and stable inflation. We start hunting around for what are other periods that may have looked like that. One of the ones that looked like that was the 1960s. And that you had very low interest rates. You had very low inflation rates initially. You had extremely low levels of realized volatility. But then there are other periods, but that was, that looked like a really interesting period because there were a lot of super similarities. And you looked at, well, what led to that? Really what led to that was you had World War II it had huge investment in, in economic capacity to build things to win that war, fight that war, and then ultimately win that war. You had everyone come back. What you had was a long period of underinvestment because you just made such huge investments. And so you had a period of actually pretty low or very, very low productivity growth. By the time you got in the 60s, you had very low productivity growth because you, you'd let a lot of these investments roll off. But what you also discover when you you look at that, which I wouldn't have known it unless we delved deeply into it, was you had a really interesting and Im an important social phenomena that was happening, which resembled the one that we're having right now, not perfectly, but kind of resembled it. And that was that after World War II, the cities became extremely dynamic. A lot of the vets came back and lived in the cities and they became these dynamic hubs. There still were a lot of people that were stuck on the farms. You had this chasm in society between the more affluent and economically dynamic people in the urban centers and the people that were left behind in the countryside. And that created political tensions that the government was hoping to solve in what at the time was kind of an unorthodox way. Again, things are always changing. So the government just said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we just let the cities really rot hot? That will create demand for labor that will suck the people in from the countryside, kind of solve that problem, get people to really move into the cities and 
this will be good for everyone. That kind of was the backdrop for what ended up ultimately becoming the 70s. There are all kinds of other things going on too. There were this demographic, the baby boomer bubble. There were a lot of things that were happening. When we saw those parallels, it was really interesting because I think the same kind of rich, poor, red, blue state, there was an echo of that that was happening in that time. What it did ultimately is it provoked a willingness by not only the government, but also the central bank to try something that was reasonably unorthodox to try to get at the heart of this problem, which was that country versus dynamic city divide. It seemed really likely that we would have some other kind of dynamic. And you kind of looked at uh, Trumpism through that lens. It, it wasn't wildly different, different politicians, different personalities, different but kind of similar dynamics. So anyway, we saw that unfolding. I would say so far so good, but kind of. We've now seen this large fiscal impulse, this marriage of fiscal monetary policy as a, a new policy paradigm, which isn't it's just new relative to history, but it's not like it's never happened before. It happens in emerging markets all the time. New for the U.S. or relatively new for the U.S. or unrecognizable compared to the last 30 years, which means for most people trading, it's brand new, but it, it's not like it's never happened before. So that's happening. The, the, obviously, the inflationary dynamic is changing now. We're seeing that. We think that that will be persistent. Again, I don't think we're going to necessarily see the 1970s because of this corollary, but it wouldn't surprise me to see something that looks a lot more like the 1970s than other periods in history. If you look at the 1970s as a, as a, a period of turmoil and change, I think it's highly likely that we have a decade of turmoil and change just because of these big forces that are you know, starting to shift. And then maybe juxtapose 60s with the 30s. You mentioned the 30s. A lot of other folks seem to have converged on extrapolating based on the 30s. For starters, let me say why, why other really prominent people in, in finance have, at least initially, I think a lot of people are warming up to the 60s, by the way. But if you roll the clock back a year, year and a half ago, I would have said that most people have said no way because they would have said that the inflation, secular stagnation is going to lock us into this period of stasis forever and technology trends aren't going to change. Globalization is going to, like, none of these things are going to change. Now that those things have, I think people are warming up to the 60s. But the big difference between the 60s, I think the biggest difference was just demographics. It's just unambiguously true. It's probably why it won't look identical. Nothing ever looks identical. When people were looking at the 60s, they were saying, well, the, the demographics are such an important feature of secular stagnation that given the differences between then and now, there's just literally no way we could repeat that. But the 30s, you didn't have such a stark contrast between now and the 30s when it comes to demographics and all those things. I um, mean, to have the same kind of baby boom. What you had is you had a Great Depression and you had a, a number of policy responses to that. We'll never know why World War II started precisely, of course. There are lots of books that have been written on it, lots of theories about it. I think to some degree, I think it's probably fair to say that the inability to really, really recover from the 30s produced the, the backdrop for war. If I'm being honest, with, I'd say that part of me not even wanting to contemplate that period is because I just, the prospect of having to have a war to get out of this whole situation is just, is too dark to think about. But I, I have to, because it's my job. It's not that I can't see parallels between that. I think that the view was that the 08 period was equivalent to a Great Depression, which I don't think that it was. That as a consequence, we were kind of stuck in this 30s type 
paradigm, late 30s. It didn't seem as extreme to me. It seemed like we've learned enough from that period that we probably won't repeat it exactly the same way. I think people are a lot less focused on the 60s and 70s. And I think almost everyone attributed the 70s to some combination of a, a bubble, a demographic baby boom bubble combined with a couple oil shocks. And, that, and, they, and then they just kind of move on. When we looked at it, we said, actually, probably you shouldn't move on. There are enough parallels that we should take it much more seriously, not be so dismissive. People have studied the 30s so substantially. If you look at Bernanke's response to 08, it was really to avoid that whole outcome for precisely the reasons that it's just too horrific to contemplate repeating that again. I just kind of don't think that we will. And best I could tell, the, the 08 shock was a shock, but it just was not even remotely close to the Great Depression. I don't know. I struggle to see the exact parallels. I, I can see that there are some similarities and I just hope that they don't, they don't play out. I, and I also think the nice thing about people focusing on dark periods problems is that they probably won't repeat. And I'm starting from Bernanke, I mean, Bernanke right out of the gate was like, look, this is, we've lived through this before. Let's not, let's make sure we don't do it again. And I would have changed many things or at least some things about how he, he handled things and how government handled things, but it seems unlikely we're going to repeat that. Yeah. That's a lovely stream of thoughts. We'll move on to the outro section. I'll start with the first one. What motivates you? I think I am motivated by, and it's evolved over my life, but I'm, I'm motivated right now by being determined to kind of not have a boring life. I think we probably have one life. We should just throw a lot at it because you know, it's, it's pretty short. The older you get, you realize how short it is. But also, I really thought about this a lot. I define a big part of my success by everyone around me doing well. And try, you know, not that I have control over that, but try to influence to the greatest degree possible really good outcomes and really good lives. That doesn't mean just always being nice to people. It's, uh, it often means just being the opposite sometimes, being very constructively critical. I want all, you know, my, my kids, I mean, that's where we all get the most leverage, I think, or at least I have four kids. So I get a lot of leverage through hopefully raising four terrific kids, but I really define success and motivated by, by being successful and having those around me do the same in those areas that are important to them. Yeah. I like that positive, some perspective, which non-consensus views you will near and dear. This goes back to some things we we're talking about with trying to look in markets for things that don't make sense. I read about quantum entanglement decades ago, and I think that it represents a clue to us that we truly do not understand reality. I am convinced that we understand only a small part of reality. It seems like reality to us, but it's a very small part of it. I think that informs the way I, I think about markets to agree and, and live my life and think about society. I, I think that we just don't understand reality. That is just something that makes me humble. I really don't think we understand much. I at least know that I don't. Quantum entanglement is something I've kept an eye on forever. And I think we probably won't ever in my lifetime won't understand. It reflects some big, deeper unknown. What or who had the most impact on your thinking, career, or life? Definitely my wife. I think when people think in 
think about those things. I think that they often list off a great author, some business person. But the reality is, if you haven't married well or found the right partner, your life will have taken a very different turn or well, the right or wrong partner. I mean, that just will inevitably have the greatest influence over your life and your legacy and your children. And I got really, really lucky with mine. We married oh, a year to the day that we met. And thank God, I just got really, I just got really lucky. But yeah, that's, that's definitely the most influential. Well, without her, we wouldn't be sitting here. So we're certainly grateful for her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> what are you currently reading? I'm always reading a couple or sometimes a few books and then, then every once in a while they'll just sit there and never even be finished, although that's kind of rare. But I'm, I'm reading uh, Helgoland. It's about quantum physics. I picked it up. I had recently finished The Three-Body Problem by Sixin Liu. I think with all the things that we've seen recently with UFOs, it's just hooked into some sci-fi. I recently read uh, this book called Extraterrestrials by uh, Avi Loeb which is a fascinating book. I wandered through some sci-fi and that brought me back to quantum physics. And Helgoland, is, it's a short book. It's a beautiful book about the history of discoveries in quantum and quantum entanglement. I always stay close to that topic. Who are your favorite writers or podcasters? My favorite authors are the classic authors. As you guys probably know at this stage, I, I'm, I spend a lot of time thinking about human psychology. I think that the reason a book stands the test of time is because it has made timeless observations about humans and who we are and why we act the way we do. The ones that have stood the test of time are the, you know, the greatest books that, that explore those things. Melville, Moby Dick, or Joseph Conrad, and Nostromo. You can read Nostromo and know everything you need to know about trading emerging markets, in my opinion. I don't know when that was written, 150 years ago or whenever. Dostoevsky. Yeah. George Orwell. Like, you got to have a soft spot for George Orwell, too. He was great. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.